Father, we do thank you for this time together. Um, Lord, as we come to your word again, we ask for hearts that receive it, not just the intellectual side of putting pieces together, of matching up clothing to what you've told us about the righteousness of Christ and what you're doing in the church. And although that's fascinating, things that we need to know in order to understand the plan of the mystery that was hidden for ages in God who created all things, we, we don't want to just stop there. Father, affect our hearts with what we hear today. Move us to love Jesus more. Forsaking all lesser things. And I pray, Father, that we have wisdom, not just knowledge. That we apply what we know in our lives. And the places that are hidden from everyone else and places that we are carving out for ourselves and not submitting to your rule and authority. Not submitting to your discipline and correction. But Father, do what only you can do by your spirit, which is to change us from glory to glory. God, I'm not so naive as to think that everyone in here is a Christian. And so for those who have not trusted in Christ, I pray that this morning would be the time that your spirit moves on their hearts to open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus. Do the miraculous, we pray, that during this hour. Because of the beauty of your word, because of the truth of the gospel, but most of all because of Christ, who for our sake became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. We ask these things in his name. Amen. All right, we're in Exodus 29. I always like it when we get to the chapters that end in 9. It makes me feel like we're accomplishing something. We're in 29, and we're going to get to 30 soon. That's just going to be awesome. We'll be in the 30s in Exodus. It's like, a, it's like that time in life where you feel like you're actually accomplishing things in life. You know, you're in your 30s, all your jobs. Or you're just like, what haven't I accomplished? What haven't I accomplished? Yeah. Well, hopefully Exodus 30 will be different than most of us have experienced on our 30th birthday. Um, all right. Let's look at Exodus 29, 1 through 9. We've been looking at the priestly garment, specifically the high priest clothes. We've gone through a discussion on the ephod, the sacred pouch with the urim and thummim. Um, the, the discerning of the judgment of God, the, the wisdom of God there. Uh, we've gone over the robe that's under the ephod, the headwear that the high priest has with the golden plate that says holy to the Lord. We've talked about the checkered tunic, uh, the sash, and the infamous linen undergarment. So we got the clothes and everything that sets apart the priests from the rest of the nation to be of service to God and, the, and mediate the covenant between God and the people. The clothes set them apart. They, they, everybody knows a priest by the way, what they wear. Today we begin the instructions for the ordination of the priests, and this is a step-by-step -step process that we're going to see. Um, and it's carried out to the letter, to the detail. 
in Leviticus 8. And we're going to get there someday. Leviticus 8. And it's basically, the, the two chapters are, are mirror chapters. They're, here's what you do in chapter 29. Uh, here's what they did in, in Leviticus 8. And it's the same language, the same thing. It's a, it's a pretty... Um, as a side note, it's one of those issues that allows for um, the integrity of the canon, that the books relate to one another. Inter-book inter relational kind of thing shows you how the canon is built together, how we can trust the Bible as being one book um, written by one author. All right, let's look at 1 through 9 in chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. <coughs> Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. The whole thing begins with one word in the Hebrew, take. This is how the ceremony is to begin. They need three animals, right? What are the animals that they need? Bull and two rams. Now, in Leviticus 8, it defines a little bit more what these animals are. And the bull is called the bull of the sin offering. You see that in Leviticus 8, 2. The ram of the burnt offering, and that's in verse 18. And then the ram of ordination. So what you have is three animals... Set up for a ceremony that shows, number one, a covering for sin. Number two, one for being accepted before God. And number three, one for being set apart for service to God. Sound familiar? What's the characteristic of these animals? What are they supposed to be? Sacrificial, yes. But what, is, what, is, what are they supposed to have? No blemish. They are without blemish, no defect, uh, pure, holy, undefiled. Uh, they are complete, unimpaired, they're healthy. And it, the signal is that clearly only whole and unblemished animals are worthy of sacrifice to God. Bringing these before God. What else do they need? How many types of bread? Three. Three animals. Three different types of bread. What are they? 
unleavened bread, leavened cakes. One is made with oil, one is smeared with oil, one is no oil. Is that... So you have these different types of breads that are brought, the different types of animals that are brought for specific purpose. They're bringing the bread, they're bringing the animals obviously for sacrifice. They're bringing the bread as kind of a tribute to Yahweh. They're going before a king to institute part of the covenant. This is the idea that's going on. They're bringing him tribute. With these items, these are what they need to begin the sacrifice during the ordination ceremony. And they'll also see something else. They're bringing bull, rams, bread. These are the elements that they're going to be using in their priestly duties. Uh, Leviticus 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7, go through the different sacrifices. It involves grain and bread and animals. And so this ordination ceremony is introducing, this is what you're dealing with. This is how this is going to look. All right. That's what they need. What do they have? What did they, these priests, these men who are going to be set apart, what do they bring to the table? Look at verse 4. What has to be done to them? They've got to be washed. Um, is this kind of a lightweight dab with a, you know, Nathaniel, when we sit up really late at night? Dad, I don't want to take a shower. Can I just have the, just wash behind my ears, wash my feet, go to sleep, don't take a full shower. Is that what's going on here? What does it say? Wash. What's the word? Um, well, I think there's purifying going on. Um, they're, they're to go at the tent of meeting. The entrance, the doorway of the tent, is that accessible to the public or not, the doorway to the tent? No. The doorway of the tent? It's the doorway, right? <coughs> so everybody's out there. And they bring the priest in front of everybody. Um, and what's going to happen is a washing. With water. Which is full on, thorough washing. Everything. <laughs> um, they... That's a good question. <laughs> it doesn't say, once it says what they put on, it doesn't say the undergarment and that, like, like the, the, the more inner garments. It doesn't say for them to put those on. So I was sort of assuming maybe they already had those on. I'm thinking that too, and we'll get to that in a little bit because I think that's probably right. Because and I'm sure hoping it is. Because when it says they put stuff on, it was the outer garments. Right. That's right, and I, and I think that's, and that's probably correct, but I did raise my eyebrows. I was reading it. Let's just go. So we're going to go with that. This is a, I, don't, I don't want to be funny with this question, but like, are they washing themselves? No. Like, I know like, when people wash other people's feet, other people wash. They are being washed by, by Moses. Okay. The mediator himself, thank you for bringing that out. The mediator himself is washing them for surface, for Aaron and his sons, for service in the tabernacle. He's doing it. They, are be they bring nothing to the table. They have to be washed and clothed by Moses, by the mediator. 
It's a thorough washing. All parts of the body, and this is prior to being clothed with the priestly garments that they're being washed. Um, now, later on, all they have to do is wash their hands and their feet because they'll be ordained and they're, they're part of them. They go through and they just wash that when they get in the temple. But this initial ordination is thoroughly washed. At the doorway of the tent, in front of everybody, would you think that would be a little embarrassing? I mean, just give up, give awkward a big old hug right there. They're, they're in front of everybody, and, they're, and the mediator is washing them from head to toe in front of everybody as a sign of why. Why go through this embarrassing ritual? What's the point of this? And obviously what? You have to be clean before God, so what is it saying? You're coming to me, you're not clean. In fact, you're unclean. And you're so unclean that everything has to be washed. It's a symbol of purification to the office of the priest. The only thing that these guys bring to the office is their impurity. That's it. They have to be washed from head to toe, and it's humbling and very public. David says in Psalm 51, 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's working off of the picture here of what happens to the priests in their ordination. Wash me thoroughly. So they need the animals and the bread. They have their sin that they're taking, and they have to be washed. What do they get? What do they get? They come to the tent with nothing but what God has told them. Even the animals are a result of the plunder from the Egyptians, right? They, they bring nothing. It's all been given. Uh, they're washed. I have in my notes in their skivvies. Um, then what else? What do they receive? What do they? Special clothes. They receive the clothing. And the oil. They can't even dress themselves. The mediator has to dress them, and he starts with the high priest. What does Moses put on the high priest? Okay, Tammy mentioned that there was something missing. What was it? The linen, the holy underwear, the the linen undergarments. And either Aaron is already wearing them, which I think is the case, um, or for reasons of discretion, they're not mentioned again. Which that doesn't seem logical to me because he already mentioned them. So why wouldn't he have a problem? God's not afraid of mentioning embarrassing things. I've, I've, <laughs> I've embraced that as we've gone through Exodus. It's well, just... It's underwear everywhere. Right, so right. The priests that, aren't going into the temple either. I mean, they're just going inside the outer wall. They don't actually go into the holy or holy, holy places. I don't know if that makes a difference, but... Well, they're still... Okay. I don't know what that. They're still they're still doing service and they're still doing the altar work right, and they're I was still. Thinking maybe the undergarment was just specifically for the high priest because he was the one actually going into the. No, I think I think it's for everybody. It's for all the priests that they wear that. The linen, the white linen undergarment thing. This is just a stab, but if if yeah, they're so intentional with the kinds of garb that they're wearing, yeah. the 
process of cleaning. It, it, to me, it doesn't make sense that you would have, have like soggy clothing. Mm. Like you get clean and you're wearing soggy clothes and then you put on all of this very intentional mm -hmm. stuff. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so you, you think that they work. wouldn't have the... the... I, I'm just, it's a stab. I'm well, that's... Saying, like you're so intentional yeah. with everything else. Why would you put them to work with soggy underwear? Yeah, well, <laughs> they are in the desert. I'm sure they dry off pretty quickly. Uh, um, so. I don't know. I don't, we're not told. And we can in... And it's not an ultimate <laughs> point whether or not they were naked when they were washed. So we'll, we'll move on. Okay. It was still a humbling thing. It was a humbling thing, <laughs> however you get there. Um, what do they do next? What do they do next? The uh, There's the sash. And they put the, they put the sash, they gird him up the sash. And here, Aaron is mentioned again. He wasn't, the sash part wasn't mentioned earlier, but here he is all, all included. So everybody gets the sash on. But what, what's the big, what, what's next? Not that the sash isn't a big deal, but. Aaron, the turban. And the turban and the, and the headgear and all that stuff. Anointing oil. Anointing oil. What is, I'll put that. Why oil? What's going on there? What, what what do we know from the use of oil? What what is that typically? What are what is typically in view whenever we see oil being? Okay. A purifying thing. Because when you would come to someone's house, they would. Who do we know? Give you oil. Oh, okay. Like who who do we know was anointed with oil in the Old Testament? Give me just throw out some names. David. David. It's kingly, okay? So we, we see setting somebody apart. Goes with setting somebody apart. A Samuel was anointed with oil as a prophet, right? Prophets are anointed with oil to set them apart. And here we have priests anointed with oil to set them apart. Prophet, priest, and king are all set apart by this anointing of oil. Um... The general priests are also brought before the entrance and clothed with their tunics, their sashes, and their headgear. And and um, and then it ends with this phrase. Can I ask a question? Sure. Sorry. I've never understood that. I've never understood why. Why? Like, why do you why pour oil? Other than it's just a symbol of setting apart. Like, why oil? Not something else. I, I think it's a cultural thing. Was it something precious, too? It's an expensive, yeah, a, a, a very expensive oil. Um, I don't know. I think it's a. I think it's a cultural ceremony that shows a distinction being made from this, not this. this. Yeah, okay. he's setting apart. Um, he wears something precious because we put it on his. We Which pour it on his head. I, I don't. We don't do that with a president. We, we make him swear an oath that he breaks. Um, so that's it's a different cultural thing with us. Um, so. The oil is a symbol to the nation, to symbol the people that are gathered as witnesses. This guy's being set apart for for that, for that, for that office. I don't know where it originated from. I'm not, we're not really told in scripture. It's just assume that that's part of the of the fabric of their lives. Is that that's the symbol for setting things apart. Uh, Thus you shall ordain. That's how it ends on uh, verse nine. 
Literally, that means you shall fill the hand. And, and what does, what's in view there? What's going on? You shall fill the hand of the priest. What do you think that reference is? You're setting them apart. They get no land. They, get no, they, they have some cities, but they get no land. They're not part of the inheritance of Israel. The Lord is their inheritance. How are they going to live? The people. The people doing what? Some of the offerings they partake in. Burn offering, whole burn offering, they don't. But other offerings, they get a portion of it. And they get a portion of the bread that comes in as an offering. Um, fill the hand is, a, is an idiom, meaning you ordain them to this. This is their livelihood. This is how they're going to be taken care of. This is how they're going to provide for themselves. In addition to service, I will provide through, through the working of the, of the tabernacle. All right. Let's think through this a little bit. They need atonement. They have nothing but their sin. They are washed and clothed. These are things that are done to them, right? Uh, you see this in Leviticus 29, Leviticus 8 language is being used. The same language is being used by Paul to describe what has happened to you if you're in Christ. Paul uses this symbol, this imagery, to discuss what has happened to you if you are in Christ. Let that sink in. What do you bring? I bring my sin to the door. I need atonement. I need a washing. I need clothing. Paul says he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Why is that? Because we have none. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's in Titus 3.5. Notice that it's a washing and a renewal. You don't wash and then go to live like you lived before. It's a washing and a renewal. A heart is changed. It's changed for service as a priest, right? You can't have one without the other in the language of the New Testament. We can't be washed and then go live like the Benjaminites. Is there a renewal, a change of action? If there's not been a change of action, then there's not been a washing. No matter how much of Bavnik's systematic theology you can quote, if there's not a change, there hasn't been a washing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, And such were some of you... But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God.
Christ was bathed in his own blood, but washed you in his mercy. You come naked in your sin, but because he bore the spite of soldiers and their mocking purple robe, you are clothed and set apart in white robes of righteousness. <clears throat> because he bore the judgment of God in anguish, you are given justification with God in peace. Hebrews 10, 19-22 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How do I know I'm in Christ? How do I have assurance that I'm in Him? You won't have assurance if you're not drawing near. My great fear, my great fear, is that you get your mind buzzing on all the neat connections we have between the Old and the New Testament. Those are great connections to make. That we get our mind buzzing with all the intellectual arguments we find in Scripture and feel really good about ourselves because we had church today. We learned something new. I have a new argument in an apologetic conversation I'm having. I'll show them. I want to make this point to you. That is every bit the folly of those who work themselves up in an emotional, ecstatic state, singing the same chanting songs over and over again. La, 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 la. It's the same thing. It's just tripping in a different area. The point of doctrine is to love Jesus. It's to love Him. If what we learn in Scripture merely provides us with another way to thump somebody in a conversation and doesn't change the way we act, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. Yes, the Holy Spirit washes our heads and how we think. But it's not so. But it's so that we look like Jesus, not so that we can hold our noses a little higher against somebody else who who doesn't know all the doctrine, the history we know. Yes, learn the doctrine, but it's to lead us to Christ. And don't also take what I'm saying as well. There we go. I don't have to learn anything. No. But remember, at the at the core of knowing. The core of searching the scripture is a person, not an idea, not an ethereal thing out in the, out in the heavens somewhere that we can, ah, oh, God's unknown. No, who we know is a person, and he demands our affection. He is entitled to our love and our devotion. 
like a spouse. That's the comparison in Scripture. Do you look like Jesus? Is he being formed in you? I fear that if we were to draw pictures of ourselves, our spiritual selves as children of God, we'd have really skinny bodies and really fat heads. I worry about that. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Do we fear God? These guys going through the ceremony are fearing God. I think they lose it when we get to the golden calf, but at this moment they know, I go in without having done this ritual, I'm dead. How many times does he say again and again, that he may not die, that he may not die. They know what they're walking into. Everything has to be followed particularly. We live under grace, but do we fear God? Do we really take to heart, strive after holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Do we take that seriously? Oh, it's just we're under the cross. There are real warnings in the New Testament. We've got to be striving after Jesus. We've got to be hungering after him. He redeems our heads, yes, but he also redeems the heart. And it has to be from the heart. And it causes real change. Do you love Jesus? Do you show it by killing your sin and looking more like him? You want assurance that you are actually in Christ and not head tripping on knowledge? 1 John 3, 3 says this, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I'm a lawyer. I'm looking for wiggle room in that statement, and I'm not finding it. No loopholes. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What if I'm not purifying myself? What if I'm not changing? What if I'm not striving? What if I don't care to change? I just like Grudem systematic theology. What does it say? I'm not hoping in him. I'm hoping in my own knowledge. What do we know about knowledge without love? What is it? It puffs up. Where does that lead us? That leads us back to, did God really say? Doesn't it? We're back to Genesis 3. Knowledge is important, but knowledge itself, by itself, puffs up. Seek wisdom. What is wisdom? What is it? Apply what you know in your life. Apply what you know. Be who you've been set apart to be. Trust in Jesus, not David Platt or Michael Horton or any of the other celebrity pastors. Whom I love. I love those guys. But they're tools to point you to Jesus. They're not the end. To the extent that you read them and are pointed to Jesus, that's great. 
But if that's not happening, I will guarantee you that Horton, Platt, Piper, MacArthur, all those guys would tell you, put down my book and spend some time in Colossians 2. Love Jesus. Be transformed by who you love. And be about serving him. Be who you are set apart to be. Any questions, any comments? Um, while we're in Exodus, it reminded me of uh, Rock of Ages by Augustus Lady. And the third verse says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, flip to thee for grace. Thou, I to thy fountain fly, watching Savior, or I die. I've heard that, you know, a thousand times, but it's it's awesome whenever you're like reading scripture and you're like, that's where they got that from. There are pictures that he paints for us in the Old Testament that I think um, are good for us to to dwell on. And if I come to the tent of meeting, to the door, we'll just say less modest than at most times, um, and know that I have to be washed. That's a humbling thing. That's not a head trip thing. It's not a puff-up thing. It's a humbling thing. We have to start there and not leave there. Nothing in my hand I bring. Anything else? All right, I'm going to pray. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Oh God, give us a heart that delights in you that delights in your word. I don't want to be a tree that doesn't produce fruit. I don't want to be useless to the kingdom. Thank you for the gifts that you've given the church and teachers and pastors who have thought through your word and proclaimed Christ and reach down deep. But God, it's you who moves the heart. And we need you every hour to move our dull hearts. Teach us to fear you and then gain wisdom. To not only know you, but to reflect you in all those secret hidden areas. There are two things that Paul talks about when he commends saints. He says, your faith in the Lord Jesus, trusting him and nothing else. 
and your love for all the saints. We love what he loves. We love who he loves. We love his church. We love the people in the church, not just the idea of the church, but the actual people in it. The weight of how inadequate we are in looking like you is crushing, Father. We have no hope except in Christ that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That you've washed us. You've clothed us in robes that are not our own and set us apart for service. Give us hearts to do the service and bring honor and glory to the king we say we love. It's in his name we pray.